My name is Christine McDougall and I am co-founder of Big Blue Sky and Chief Steward of 223AM. Big Blue Sky is an annual event designed to convene and coordinate citizens to co-create moonshot projects to increase the Commonwealth of Community. Dr David Martin, a world expert in innovation finance, our guest in this fireside chat, is on the Values Council of the Big Blue Sky Trust and has been integral to the creation of Big Blue Sky. This fireside chat was recorded May 9th, 2016. Thank you very much for coming. Um, David, um, I met in uh, 2006, actually I met him through an audio recording um, when he was speaking at um, an Arlington Institute think tank um, on the subject of the coming implosion of the global economy and he was speaking about this not from a uh, predictive uh, sense which is what I found very fascinating but he was speaking about it really naming a sequence of events that um, if you stepped back and really looked at them uh, you could only end up at the place that we're generally familiar with now is the, um, the global financial crisis of 2008. And so part of, the, part of um, hearing this conversation with David uh, led me on a path of trying to, or recognising first and foremost that I was definitely a pawn in a very big game and that um, along with most of the rest of the world and that I needed to get in, get myself educated. So I don't begin to profess to have a lot of um, of the depth that you'll find that David has. Um, but uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to convene this conversation is because uh, there is a lot I think that we as citizens can do and community uh, to do that will make a difference to uh, the future of the global economy on, uh, and the effects it will have on us as a local community but also um, as Australian citizens. And so that was the purpose of bringing David here. So thank you very much. Lovely to be here. <laughs> you. So we're going to start and how we're going to start with this is we're going to draw the arrow right back. Uh, we're going to start with a historical perspective that brings us to today and then we're going to look at the coming, uh, some of the coming scenarios that I'm sure you'd be interested in and then we want to bring it back into a more uh, local view, so looking at it from the Australian um, nation, you know, national um, point of view and then bringing it even closer into a regional point of view which is what we as a region and a community uh, have the capacity and the ability to do. So on that basis, let's draw the arrow back. And how far shall we go? Is it back to World War II, or are we going to go further than that? Well, to, to understand the current dynamics, we definitely want to go to 1935. Okay. And really build out the architecture from 1935 forward. Um, but to set the historical context, the comedy really starts in 1776 and that period from 1776 to, to 1815, which is when the framework for how global trade, tax and finance policy were kind of done sub rosa so that the public really didn't understand what was going on. So there's a bit of that that sets the stage for the Second World War. And that's how far back the arrow really gets drawn. So if we start all the way back, mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to realize that the, the financial model that we have, which is the industrial complex model, 
which looks at a human laborer as a finite time period. They you know, are useful when they can go to the mills and they cease being useful when they're injured or they can't go to the mills anymore. <laughs> that framework was born in 1776, Adam Smith, the Wealth of Nations, and so forth. And that happens to coexist with the formation of the United States, also in 1776, which was the social experiment to the economic experiment. So these two things co-emerge simultaneously. Right. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that the U.S. economy, which served as a template for a lot of the rest of the world's economy, was actually never independent. Most people don't realize that the War of 1812, which was a trade-based war, and really had a lot to do with more what was going on in Central Europe and mainland Europe than it had to do with the Americas. The War of 1812 and the Treaty of Ghent that ended the War of 1812 and 1815 created the tax haven policy, which is now what we're living with in the later stages of the economic revolution right. that we've been. So, so ironically, allegedly the United States gained independence from Great Britain. But in many respects, with the Treaty of Ghent and the end of the War of 1812, we actually ceded our economic future to Great Britain. Right. And so the comic irony is, if we draw the arrow all the way back, we realize that the fact that we have now tax shelters in every British domiciled island that you can think of, which actually undermines the currency of our current economy. We right. actually don't have money in circulation. We have money that's parked in tax shelters and tax havens, is a product of 1776 to 1815. And the Second World War, where we really want to start this conversation, yeah. is actually just the comic end of an experiment that started in 1776. Right. So just before we go to World <coughs> War II, um, your, what I'm hearing you say is that the, the British consciously are you saying that there was some consciousness behind this? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, cr uh, created a system as, that we now know and has obviously become public knowledge, um, very much so in the recent months as the Panama Papers and so on, um, uh, created this uh, um, tax haven sort of opportunity in which a large part of the US wealth is stored. Yeah, and, and they can have they have access. They can manipulate that. Is, is, oh, absolutely. There must be a way that they can. Yeah, absolutely. That. And if you look at the fact that in the Panama Papers, if you look at any of the domiciled corporations in terms of, you know, when a Chinese company goes public, it lists through a tax haven in the United States. So even a Chinese successful IPO passes through a tax haven before it goes into the traded markets. Right. So regardless of how we look at it. This master plan, which was fundamentally a reserve-based plan, which says who has the balance sheet controls the fate of the world, mm -hmm. right? It's not who has the trading hegemony. It's not who has the industrial hegemony. It's who has the balance sheet. And at the end of the day, Britain got the balance sheet of the world in 1815. Right. And since then has never lost it. And so the comic irony is that we're living in a world where we run around yelling that we were independent. But essentially what we were was this great service class that manufactured tons of wealth that we then dropped into tax shelters and domiciles. And lo and behold, 
the Crown got what the Crown wanted all along, which was a massive, massive balance sheet, which is what it has now. So, who, so just before we come back to World <laughs> War II, who profits from that? I mean, because I don't think anyone in this room is experiencing profit from that situation. Uh, so, where, where, where is the? What's the design thinking behind that, and why are you know who's winning that? Well, the biggest nominal winner has been forever yeah. life insurance companies. Okay and the interest holders of life insurance companies. If you go back and look at the Scottish Widows and Orphans Fund, which were the birth of the life insurers, which are the kind of the classic and modern version of largest residual asset holders on the planet, life insurers have two things going for them. They have the fear of mortality, which is a fairly reliable business. <laughs> yes. um, people are notorious for being able to constantly be fearful of their own death. And they have this wonderfully um, predictable bet in the industrial economy that people will outspend their earning potential. Right. It's a phenomenal tool. If you create a world in which your sales pitch is, you wouldn't want to leave your family with your credit or your hideous consumption, right? Everybody in there, yeah. back of their mind goes, yeah, uh, my God, I wouldn't want to leave my family with my credit card debt, my mortgage, whatever. You have this phenomenal tool. Yeah that is a constant cash flow in. And then because of the nature of life insurance, you have long dated assets. Mm -hmm. The expectation is I'm gonna get cash today for a future, which is an indeterminate future, but we know it's somewhere between 30 and 50 years from when you make that first decision. And so you have to create economic systems that create artificially long dated assets. And since the middle of the 1800s, that means mortgages and real estate become subservient to the life insurance markets. That means that large-scale infrastructure, power, mm -hmm. utilities, infrastructure becomes subservient to the life right. insurance duration. And so everything that we call long-dated assets is defined largely around a financial engineering that says that people who keep that large pool of large long-dated assets, which largely are insurance companies right. and the fiduciaries, are the ultimate beneficiary. So we have a system that was built on the fear of death, yeah. which is a very reliable thing to build a business around. And if you look post-2008, and people forget that the GFC should have taken out mm. balance sheets of insurance companies. Mm. But they now have 400% more cash right. today than they had in the history of the industry. 400% mm. more cash. Forget all the other assets. 400% more cash than they've had in the history of the entire industry, 400-year history. Now, if you stop and ask yourself, how is it that you could have 400% more cash than you've ever had after the world went through a GFC? Yeah. You now find your winner. Your winner is the people who architect the system, right. okay. which actually then drive all of the benefit of that system. Right. And so the reason why most people don't see themselves as beneficiaries is you've been sold the bill of goods that somebody else can handle your cash better than you can. Right. Which is the reason why you're willing to pay your life insurance premium and your mortgage insurances and all of your other kinds of insurances. You're willing to pay them because somebody sold you on the idea that you're not to be trusted. Mm. So, safe bet. You do that, create an illusion that you can't be trusted, and you've got a very reliable 230-year business model. Mm. Okay. So... So there's real winners. Yeah, there's real winners. By the winners. way, look at where most of them have their corporate assets held. 
British domiciled tax (laughs) Tax havens. havens. (laughs) Bermuda, Bahamas, Channel Islands. You know, this is not an accident. This is very well architected. Right. Okay, we'll come back to the architecture in a moment. Yeah. So let's move to World War Two and and uh, and what when we when we were talking about this, we we're talking about the three legs of the stool collapsing. Yeah. So the upcoming collapse of yeah. the next GFC, which actually technically happens in 2017, is a failure of the pension system. Mm-hmm. That's the proximate. That, that may be the headline that gets discussed, where you have, for example, in the United States, you have the failure of the Medicare and Medicaid system and the welfare system in the United States, which was established largely under the Roosevelt administration. Yep. You have inside of the U.S. economic problem that is emerging, an underfunded pension system, which is overweight national debt, because one of the things that the pension systems in the United States do is they buy sovereign debt. So the great news is the assets that we hold really aren't assets. We have agency loans, which are real estate, that are government-guaranteed real estate. So we have a bit of a Ponzi scheme where the government's guaranteeing an asset. The public is buying the asset in the form of pensions and national pension schemes, and nobody is actually understanding that there's what's called a clash risk which is the correlated risk of assets, mm-hmm. where you have one of those things fall and then all of them fall together. But what we know is that the current pension scheme in the United States, which was born as part of the great experiment that Roosevelt put in place, was a system 70 years later which has an overweight exposure to real estate assets and to sovereign assets. Because of central bank interventions, we've had an enormous negative actuarial pool. And by that, what we mean is that for long-dated assets to work, you have to have minimum returns that Mm -hmm. compound them. And while the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and other central banks manipulated interest rates to allegedly heal from the GFC, what happened was the pension obligations lost their actuarial momentum. They lost the ability to compound returns. And because they lost their ability to compound returns, they now don't have the money to meet their future obligations. Mm -hmm. So officially, in the first quarter of 2017, Medicare and Medicaid in the United States and a lot of the Social (coughs) Security infrastructure will have a net 21% degradation in cash value. Right. Now, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. That means that the money that's supposed to flow out to beneficiaries has to be reduced by at least 10%. Some estimates are as much as 14%. And the tax that's required to run out of money, and you've heard what I said correctly, the tax that's required to run out of money in 2035, which is the official death knell of the pension system in the United States, so that we can have a soft landing, which means it's gone forever, We have to increase Social Security tax by 12%. Now, do the math on that. Take 12 to 14% out of the distribution side and tax every working laborer at least 12%. So now you've created this giant negative cash flow, which has a net economic effect that says discretionary income falls by 21% in the United States. Take 21% of discretionary income out of any economy and tell me what happens. 
that's not a great depression. That's something we've never seen. We've never seen a net loss of 21% effective buying power of an economy, ever. And that's what we have, not maybe, that's actually publicly reported statistics that is now being covered by what we refer to as an election in the United States. Right. Where <laughs> neither party is talking about the glaring omission, right. which is the holy crap moment. So pensions are the approximate cause. Yeah. But if we actually deconstruct the three legs of the stool, there's a bigger underlying problem. Yeah. Because after World War II, the MacArthur Plan and other economic reconstruction plans, both in Europe and in Asia, which were put in place largely as a, once again, grand global experiment on the economy, built manufacturing infrastructure for other countries. So Britain, France, Germany, Japan, and others got their infrastructure rebuilt as part of the reconstruction plan. Yep. But what was really the pivotal shift in 1930s to 1940s was innovation went from being product and technology oriented to process oriented. If we think about the large innovations of the 1940s and 1950s, certainly by the 1960s this is absolutely the case, the process oriented innovation drove the ship. How do I get better quality? How do I do more total quality management? How do I optimize? How do I innovate the margin of manufacturing efficiency? But the product level innovation, mm -hmm. the materials level innovation, the fundamental drivers of the new, the innovative, all those things, fell away. To a point where by the time we get to the 1960s and 1970s, the majority of innovation is about organizational dynamics, production orientation, and quality. It's not about fundamental innovation. It's not about new ideas, yeah. new concepts, and new production. So we have a process taking over product-level innovation. We have this giant social experiment of pensions and kind of the unseen hand being beneficent, and we, the people, should surrogate to the people who know our futures. And then the last leg of the stool is Bretton Woods. Mm -hmm. Now, Bretton Woods is a really bizarre anomaly. In July of 1944, and if you recall, July of 1944, we still don't know who's really won, yeah. right? There's still some ambiguity as to are the Allies or the Axis really going to come out on top? And we don't really know who's won. But in 1944, in July, a group of 44 countries got together and kind of looked around and said, who's the prettiest girl at the dance when it came to monetary and infrastructure and so forth? And it turns out that if you looked around the room, Britain had been bombed, Germany and France had been bombed, all of Europe was in smithereens, you know, Asia couldn't figure out exactly where it was going to play out, so there was all kinds of civil unrest, and there was a, a, a ton of social unrest going on. And it turns out that the United States actually looked like it was probably the prettiest girl at the dance. The problem was it was an all-boys school. Right. There were no girls at the dance, which is part of the reason why Bretton Woods is so oxymoronic. If you go back and look at July of 1944, when the decision was made to put in place a clearing currency, yes. had it not been for the fact that we had Iran, Saudi Arabia, and others who were willing to trade petroleum mm -hmm. for U.S. dollars, which ultimately was what carried the day, 
So the petrodollar was in fact a literal exchange dynamic that was required. If we look at what made Bretton Woods so crazy, is that we have a situation where less than 10 years earlier, and this is where historians even miss this point, 10 years earlier, 1935 Banking Act was the birthplace of things like the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Before that, we didn't have a banking system that insured deposits. We did not have a robust economy. Right. We just had the best-looking economy compared to destroyed economies of Europe and destroyed economies of Asia. But we didn't have a healthy banking system. We didn't have a healthy currency system. We didn't have a healthy trade system. We just didn't have the brokenness that everyone else had. And I often point as a social metaphor to drive this point home is if you look at early James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Now remember, Ian Fleming wrote most of his pieces in the second half of, of the 20th century. But if you look at James Bond movies and then look at the villains, and remember these villains are late 60s, 70s, and early 80s, the wealthy ultra-bad guy, the guy who really is the most successful, the one who's taking over the world, has what as his currency? And remember, this is post-war and post-Bretton Woods. The wealthy, ultra-wealthy, uber-bad guy has Deutsche Marks. Now, how is it that even at a social metaphor, after Germany allegedly was bombed into compliance to be subservient to the rest of the world, how is it that the Deutsche Mark retained its ability to be the metaphor for the most robust currency that the ultra-wealthy man would have? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is quite simple. The Deutsche Mark pre the war, the Deutsche Mark during the war, and the Deutsche Mark after the war, all the way to the mid-70s, was actually a productivity-linked currency. It actually was built on the faith in currency of the utility of the German innovative infrastructure. That's what it was supported by. And the rest of the world, including our social metaphors, respected that. And when we look at the fact that in 71 and 72, when the U.S. goes off the gold standard and when we start slipping into that we don't really know what our currency is based on because we don't really know what our currency is based on, the illusion that we pumped up was an intervention-based illusion. It wasn't an industrial manufacturing illusion. It was a service illusion, not a production illusion. And so Bretton Woods created this moment in time where multilateral agencies, the UN, World Bank, IFC, all of these things come into play. And the problem is that music box will keep playing as long as the petrodollar keeps playing. But here's the problem. Hmm. We now have a collapsing oil dollar. And now all of a sudden people are going, well, if oil starts slipping then doesn't all of the things that depend on oil trade also slip with it? Well, the answer came in very loudly and clearly two years ago, which is, as Brent crude fell, and as West Texas crude fell, and as all the oil prices fell, the relevance of Bretton Woods went with it. Mm -hmm. And the subtle black swan that people will talk about several months from now, and people will go, oh, who could have seen it coming? The answer is... All of us saw it coming, and we didn't pay attention. 
But the black swan that ended Bretton Woods was a little tiny construction inside the World Bank called the Special Drawing Right, or SDR. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, a SDR is essentially a hedge in the form of currency where you can get money from the World Bank or you can get money from a multilateral agency and you can elect to pay it back in a future yet undefined currency. Right. So I get my loan in dollars, <clears throat> but I may pay it back in euros, I may pay it, pay it back in renminbi, I may pay it back in a basket currency that doesn't yet exist. And if you look at the World Bank and the IFC financing, publicly disclosed deals, large infrastructure deals around the world, started being denominated in SDRs. And the public has paid no attention to that. Well, what that means is that people in the know yeah. knew that this was coming. Mm -hmm. And they knew it was coming a long way back because they built SDRs into their template. So they knew that multilateral agencies were ultimately going to roll off the dollar because it was literally built into the foundation of the multilateral agency. <clears throat> but the public has not been told that. The public has given this illusion that somehow the dollar is the hegemonic yeah. currency forever and ever and ever. The fact of the matter is the people who agreed to Bretton Woods agreed that it wasn't. Yeah. So the three legs of the stool, the pension system, mm -hmm. which is a continuation of the life insurance industrial economy metaphor, the collapse of the dollar that denominates Bretton Woods-based infrastructure, and then this very phenomenally interesting you know, innovation shift, which made Deming a hero and kept an Edison or a Tesla from ever coming out again. Right. Those three legs all collapse, and they all collapse probably around the pension system failure. Right. So I'm going to ask you a question because I'm sure <coughs> other people are thinking about this in reference to innovation. Um, that uh, is, has there been ever in recent times, has there been a, a switch away from process-based to more innovation in any recent <coughs> times? I mean, can we, is there anything that we can look at that can go, there is a focus on innovation or there's been a circling back to that? Or, or, so can you speak to that? Well, I think it's important to separate... <coughs> Innovation from incrementalism. And right. I think that this is a mistake that we make in our economy today. Okay. Um, we think that when Apple decides to change the shape of a rectangle to a rounded rectangle, right. that's innovation. <clears throat> we think that slide to unlock as a way to unlock our phone is innovation. <clears throat> Never mind the fact that sliding things to unlock things has been around probably as long as at least the locks that are working in temples in Egypt from, I don't know, 3,000 years before the Common Era. <clears throat> this, this notion that incremental improvements yep. or function-based incremental, incrementalism <clears throat> is innovation is a gross mistake. It actually does what the GFC proved about, the real estate market. When you take 30-year assets called real estate mm -hmm. and you pool it with consumer credit, which is what happened in the GFC. <clears throat> you take a fixed dated asset and you turn it into a variable asset. When you do that, you collapse an economy. That's what happened in 2008. The same thing is the case with innovation. Mm -hmm. If you take fundamental materials science, you take fundamental materials organization, and you start doing some interesting things with it, 
you actually build industries that can evolve over time. When your industries are largely taking existing models and optimizing them so that they're more socially convenient, what you've done is a utilitarian improvement, right. but you haven't done innovation. And when innovation becomes a politically correct and celebrated term for market adaptability and market implementation, what you've done is you've taken long-scale material science production cycles, like what we do with copper, like what we do with semiconductors, like what we do with the silicon crystal, <clears throat> and you turn that into something which isn't fundamentally changing. What that means is that we're always constrained within the frameworks of the mm -hmm. science and technology that we had in the 40s and 50s. Right. So what we haven't done, in fact, I have this long-standing challenge that I get a lot of criticism for, but I've asked anybody to name a true invention that's happened since World War II. I don't care whether you're talking about solid fuel rockets. I'm, I don't care if you're talking about radio antenna. I don't care if you're talking about electronic commerce. I don't care if you're talking about any of those things. And the fact of the matter is, you'd be hard-pressed to get an audience anywhere to identify something that truly was invented since the Second World right. War. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean we don't have contexts that have shifted that says we can move things more efficiently and we can shovel data a lot faster and we can stack it a lot neater. But we haven't done fundamental question the underlying assumptions level invention for a long time. And people point to alternative energy as a place where they want to go. But ask yourself, Solar photovoltaics, how old are they really? In the physics behind that, the ability to look at energy levels of photonic capture across different planes inside of the, the solar cell <clears throat> has been around a long time. How long have we operated with the same horrible efficiencies? Less than 27% right. energy harvest. Mm. The fact of the matter is we've been doing that since the yeah. giant everything in the world was going to change energy crisis of 1973. Right. Now, can we make solar cells a little faster? Yes. Can we make more of them? Yes. But that's not invention. Right. That is incrementalism right. for the purpose of consumption. Yes. And so one of the grave challenges is when we look at society and say, what is our resilience plan? If we have pension failure, if we have banking failure, if we have currency failure, if we have all of these other systems that after 70 years old are starting to break their hips and fall over, what is the go-to plan right. that says, hey, we the people know that we can actually go back to material science and start playing with material yeah. science, or we can start going to other things and start playing with them. And the fact is, we don't have education systems for that. Yeah. We don't have laboratories for that. We don't have business process innovation for that. We don't have a robust laboratory experiment that says here's a model that works. Those are not commonly accessible. So the concern that we really fundamentally have as, as a public is that we have <clears throat> this phenomenal en engine that has been propped up through intervention for the last 70 years. And when the engine stops running, the emperor having no clothes is going to be super visible. Right. And we're going to see that we actually haven't fundamentally done as a people 
what we are actually required to do as a people, which is to lead, challenge status quos, push boundaries, yeah. understand what is the known and the laws of the universe and laws of physics, yeah. and what are just the consensus illusions. Right. So just before we move into the future, um, I just want to give a little bit of context to that because I know that you have spent the last 25 or so years um, uh, um, building a huge database of um, or huge <coughs> storehouse yeah. of, of innovation, something like 80 million... 88 million. 88 yeah. million patents stored on your servers yeah. and so on. And so when you're talking about innovation, you're really... you have the opportunity to look on a daily basis at the inside of just I sort of use it like um, Google the Google of of, um, patents and innovation Um, and so this is not something that you're making as an idle comment this is something that you're making as a daily observation in your life experience yeah that's a great point and one of the things I love about that point is for years people thought I was just dogmatic yeah yeah they were probably right yeah (laughs) probably was dogmatic (laughs) But several years ago, I decided to prove it in terms that they would understand. Yeah. And so uh, several years ago, we decided that if you want to really show that what you're measuring and the allegations you're making about invention and innovation are true, the best way to do it is to take the top of the market, the largest Mm -hmm. asset holders, the largest industrial complexes in the world, which are... Russell 1000 equivalent, large corporations publicly traded around the world, run our analysis on what's the difference between invention, innovation, and incrementalism. Yes. And then invest in equities that are invention heavy and incrementalism light. Right. So the thesis is simple. If I'm right, and if the way I look at my data is right, I should be able to pick out companies who have the highest probability of succeeding in forward market opportunities because they're the most innovative companies. And if you can do that in the largest cap companies on earth, then you're probably measuring something correctly. Because efficient market theory tells us that everybody that's in the market has all the knowable information and everything that's knowable is known generally, therefore you should pick up no advantage. Mm -hmm. Tiny problem. Since we launched our Purple Bridge Fund strategies, we have a typical 108% outperform of the industrials indexes. Mm -hmm. Now, 108% outperformance means that I'm measuring something, not a little something. I'm measuring something that is massive. And it turns out that since my performance is audited, it's not my dogmatic position. That doesn't lessen my dogmatism. Right. Let's be really clear. I actually get more dogmatic. I get borderline rabidly dogmatic because now I'm beating the system at its own game, proving that what I'm measuring is in fact measurable and proving the thesis that when I say things aren't innovative and not part of a value accretive process of innovation, I know what I'm talking about. Now, the fact is that when we look at that, And we look at that at a global level, where we look at U.S. and European equities at the large cap. We look at the ASX level. What we see is that there is nobody who's actually willing to say the emperor has no clothes. We don't want to point to a company and say, I'm sorry, despite the fact that Silicon Valley put tons of venture capital into you, despite the fact that all of the VC models have reinforced your illusion, you're not innovative. Nobody wants to say that. 
And the reason why they don't is because of the three-legged stool. If you pull the, the illusion of innovation out from under this current market, <clears throat> who loses? Well, who loses are the pension holders, right? Self-managed, self you know, annuity funds here, the yeah. super funds in Australia. Who loses? The ETF buyers, 70% of the current market trade is ETFs. Most of the public is exposed to ETFs. ETF is? Exchange-traded funds. Right. These things don't have the inputs on what's invent inventive, what's innovative, and what's incremental. And now all of a sudden, if you call the bluff of the current system, you've now threatened all of the system. Right. And so it's convenient to look the other way. It's convenient to say, well, let's be overweight in Australia, 40 to 50% overweight to real estate, which sounds like a phenomenally good idea given the fact that it was overweight real estate in 2007, which blew up the global economy. I mean, if you were writing the novel yep. and you had the most inept person who doesn't know anything about finance running the finance ship, you wouldn't come up with that genius plan. <laughs> that is the single dumbest exposure that you can imagine. And that is the economic policy that is currently fueling the economy. And you just sit back and go, well, you know, when it flames out, it's not an accident. And the people who are winning, and this is really critical, the people who are winning are selling product. They are not selling risk. They're not selling guidance. They're not selling wisdom. They're not selling insight. They're selling products. And as long as you can keep that merry-go-round going and keep the illusion that, hey, you're buying your mortgage, but your mortgage is really underwritten by the government who's guaranteeing part of your mortgage. And by the way, what's that guarantee based on? Oh, that's, that guarantee is based on real estate assets held by the government in pools of real estate assets. That's called a Ponzi scheme in any system. Yeah. But we call it real estate investment support for the Australian right. economy. Right. So in this, are you speaking in this regard specifically to the Australian economy or are you speaking in reference to other economies around Oh, the no, world? we can go across Europe yeah. and we can see the same thing. I mean, right. Europe is notorious for saying, let's not tell people how many times they're exposed to the same risk. Right. So mm -hmm. we're going to pretend that you have investments in the financial markets. If you look at the ASX, allegedly, if you have an exchange-traded fund that's tracking the ASX, you have a bunch of financial services exposure. Mm -hmm. How many of those exposures are real financial services and how many of those are real estate asset holding companies? Nobody asked that question. But if you look at the balance sheets of those institutions, you find out what assets they're holding. And the majority of the assets they hold are real estate. So now, when I do an asset allocation, and if I'm a financial manager, a financial analyst, I'm supposed to help you understand your risk profile, and I'm supposed to help you diversify. So now you've got your real estate at 30 plus, 30 plus percent, and you've got your equities over here at 30 to 40 percent. But the problem is your 30 to 40 percent equities is 50 percent real estate. So how much real estate do you really have? Those kinds of conversations don't take place. Yeah. And the public then is shocked when all of a sudden the bottom drops out. Why are they shocked? They're shocked because the advisors never yeah. told them that when you're buying a bank equity, you're really buying 
a balance sheet filled with the same thing that you've been told to go overweight because the government's behind it and going to guarantee yeah. it. So it's just this ongoing kind of financial product collusion, which we saw in the early 2000s. Yeah. And it's happening again, but it's happening at a bigger scale. And so it's happening in Europe, it's happening in the US, it's happening in many South American countries, and it's definitely happening in Australia. And for some reason, we didn't get the memo in 2007 yeah. that this was a really bad idea. So we've taken a really bad idea and made it worse because that's the level of creativity that we have. Okay, so moving forward. <laughs> You, you mentioned 2017, uh, and I know in another conversation you've talked about in Australia or somewhere in the early um, 2020s. Yeah. So can you speak about some of the uh, some of the uh, um, events that are um, scheduled to occur, as in actually scheduled? Yeah. So so the the pension failure piece, which is this fundamental architectural failure, is something that because of the central bank manipulation of interest rates since 2008, 2009, yeah. is unfixable. Yeah. The good news is we're in for this. So we, we don't have a mechanism to fix it. Yeah. We lost the momentum of compounding interest, which means that people are not going to die fast enough to live to the end of their pension actuarial horizon. Right. So when people find this out is going to be variable. I always think that the, the worst thing to aspire to right now is to be president of the United States All right. in the 2016 election. Because mm -hmm. President Hoover, who famously presided over the Great Depression, is going to look like a walk in the park compared to what the next president of the United States will be painted with. History will not be kind to either of the potential candidates. So I'm delighted that neither one of them is that great a person. So the fact that they'll live in kind of this rather <coughs> maligned view of history, which, by the way, they'll have nothing to do with. The yeah. funny thing is they'll be blamed for something that was put in process long before they ever yeah. showed up on the scene. The bad news is, is they're going to get blamed. The good news is these are people that if they get blamed, you know, it's not like we have great human beings who are suddenly devastated. So that's, that's awesome if you're going to pick who's going to take the fall. But what happens is that we have this thing, which is going to be this breakdown of the pension scheme. And the question of intervention becomes fa fabulous, because what we'll have to do is figure out who's going to buy debt, which is how the US solves problems. The way we solve problems is, actually, we have two ways to solve problems. We declare war on people, yeah. which is phenomenally effective, and we sell debt. With the dollar and the petrodollar falling apart, selling debt has become somewhat dodgy, and so we have to buy our own, which is also right. another interesting Ponzi scheme. Yeah. But we're not the only ones that do that. If you look at the Australian superannuation financial model right now, you find a very interesting statistic, which is Australians are saving tons of money, and there's trillions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars of unallocatable assets right now. So Australia is trying to find markets for them. That should alarm everybody who hears that. If there is more money that's floating around than yep. we know what to do with, maybe then there's more money floating around than there should be money floating around. Maybe we have an excess supply of currency. And one of the things that the Australian public doesn't understand is that its currency has been subjected to a number of speculators who have decided that because Australia has very favorable economic conditions, 
largely driven off of historical resource-based economies. And currently, people are fairly robust about Australia's future because of its trading relationship largely with China. There is this notion that somehow or another this is a great place to do business and to park capital and to invest capital, which is actually a wonderfully true thought. The problem is we actually don't know how many Australian dollars are really supported by the Australian economy and how many Australian dollars are really supported by speculators who are actually yes. using the Australian dollar as a means of hedging other currency risks. Yep. Now, this is a very delicate situation because officially as an outsider, I'm not supposed to know this and not supposed to talk about it. But I, because I'm an outsider, love to speculate and talk about this. I think that what you have is somewhere between 13 and 17 percent conservatively of the Australian dollar that doesn't really exist. And by really exist, I mean it's not supported by any economic engine. It doesn't have a basis of value. It doesn't have a basis of future productivity. It doesn't have a basis of anything. I think it's largely financial speculation. Compound that with the fact that you have a lot of international interest in your financial institutions and your real estate market. And now that number could go as high as 25 to 30 percent. Right. So what's the real value of the Oz dollar? Well, the funny thing is nobody can answer that question because it is part of this intricate web of other currencies. So the question becomes, when the pension system in the U.S. fails in 2017, what is the domino effect that happens around the world? And the U.S., once again, prone for intervention in the form of selling debt or war, is very likely to use one of those two tools, possibly both. When we have a xenophobic person who is definitely going to be in the running for president, and we have a U.S. Senate that has been very manipulated by military and defense infrastructure contractors, there is a reasonable probability that war is going to be the more attractive option than selling debt and having people buy debt. And that leads us to a very interesting paradox, which is when we try to finance war this time, as we've done in the past, financing war also involves debt. So we actually have to ramp up the engine that allows us to pay for wars. And this time around, we may not find a lot of friendly people to support us, which is partially, I think, the reason why a lot of our allies, Australia quite notably, has been asked to spend a lot of its money to defend the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean. Because I think what we're doing is recognizing that an impending conflict is in the offing. I think we realize that what we need to do is essentially pre-fund the infrastructure development for war (coughs) and get our allies to pay for the thing we know we can't pay for. And I think that's an alarming thing about the most recent Australia defense allocations because I think it's largely driven by a forward theater for a war that we can't finance in the United States and we want our allies to fight for us. And I don't think that the Australian public probably is interested in following the great American experiment back into war. (laughs) That creates, obviously, a very interesting challenge because this happens to be an island country And the likelihood 
that somewhere involved in this conflict is going to be a conflict between part of Asia and part of the U.S. Yeah. It's a high probability. If that conflict were to happen, then the question becomes whose side is Australia on? Yeah. Because your economic ties are north, yeah. not east. Yeah. And so that's a very interesting challenge. And I think that the pragmatic view is that we need to have a different conversation now because I think a lot of old 1950s and 1960s thought processes are at play. And I think the Australian public desperately needs a conversation about where the future of this country is ultimately going to be headed because the conversation that's not happening right now is actually allowing a vacuum to be filled by a very few people who actually are very, very committed to a very old model. And the old model is when your economy stops working, create ultranationalism, create patriotism, and create conflict. That model hasn't served humanity very well, and that's the one that we look like we're going towards again. And I think we can put the brakes on right now and have a different conversation. Right. So what does this mean? Okay, that was a big that was a big piece to stomach. So what what does this mean? Um, okay, for Australia as because we're not having this conversation. I mean, I don't think I've never heard anyone. I'm not reading about it. I'm no. I'm not seeing it. It's not there. It's not happening. Uh, um, but I also know that um, just the, uh, my own sense, the sentiment in Australia is that no, we don't want to go and fight somebody else's war, particularly with a country that. We've got a lot of engagement with, so yeah. yeah so that's going to create an issue. Um, so let's um, let's bring it back to what we can do, yeah. and let's turn this around to something that is um, uh, because, uh, as um, discussing earlier, you know, most people think that that um, our whole system is just we it's the only one we have. It's a bit like you think that we've only got a Macintosh system when we've actually got choice of many, many different ways of accessing the internet. So what can we do? You know, what are the things that we can do um, both as, as a nation and also then looking at what we can do as community and as individuals? Well, the great news is, for starters, conversations like this need to happen yeah. and they need to proliferate. There needs to be an awareness that says, let's examine the operating system that we think we're using. Yes. Because most people have no idea. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is I'm often criticized for either being a futurist or being some sort of prophet or whatever and, and having all these kind of crazy harebrained ideas of that there is a future and we could do a better job than what we're doing. And I'm often criticized by people who are certain that we must be operating on the best system we've got. Right. And that's ludicrous. We are operating on a horrible system. Yeah. It was created on a debt-based, death-based illusion. So... Yeah. That's a terrible foundation, and that foundation includes people who are miserable, yep. who are working for pathetic salaries, hoping to one day retire from the miserable job that they have so they can spend the last 30 years bitching about the job that they had, and hopefully going to Bali once before they die. Like, that's the best we've got working for us, and we defend that. And my argument would be, how about we do things that are so freaking interesting <laughs> Yeah. That we literally do them to the moment that we keel over next to the person who's equally engaged and equally passionate and yeah. 
they keel over with us or whatever. Like, yeah. what if we didn't have a model that said, let's prostitute our time and our efforts for the thing that makes us miserable so that one day we can escape that misery and kind of create this nonsense, very Protestant, heaven on earth illusion that says, I'll put up with the purgatory for the pearly gates of my pension. Which isn't and going to be there. Which, by the way, isn't going to be there. So the good news is right. heaven is gone. There you have it. Heaven <laughs> is gone. Yeah. There is none. There will be no St. Peter. There is nothing. So, so if, if we actually start with the, the situation, which is the promise is already broken. The future is not going to happen. So what we've got now is now. But what we need to do is take a step back and say, are we doing things that are productivity linked? Mm-hmm. Now, what that's going to involve is an immediate emancipation of enclosure-based systems. Right. Now it's about network systems. It's about what I refer to as covalent models. Right. How do I as an oxygen, how do I as a hydrogen figure out how to share electrons so that we can make water? Because flowing is more interesting than floating around as gas. We want to have water. We need to figure out our covalencies. Now what does that look like? What that looks like is doing a deep interpersonal community, however we define community, small scale, medium scale, city, state, national, international. How do we build covalency models that says, this is what we bring to the table. These are the things that we steward. What are the things that you steward? And what new molecule of cooperation, what new molecule of opportunity can be born from us working together? Now, the irony is, that if we do that correctly, we're going to find out that most of the time we don't need to have a central reserve-based currency to make that work. One of my favorite examples of this was Rabobank. When Rabobank was formed in the Netherlands, it was a recognition that wheat harvests happen on one cycle, millers grind that wheat on another cycle, and bakeries bake bread on another cycle. And what Rabobank found its role to be was just the blending and the smoothing of those cycles. Mm-hmm. Right? It wasn't about extortionary lending and it wasn't about getting usurious capital returns. It was about being the trusted agent that says, I can hold on to the wheat production long enough for the miller to create the flour, which is appropriately created for the baker to use in right. that daily value. And what I'm doing as a bank is mediating the flow of capital in a network. If you look at that model, it's proof, by the way, that capitalism works, but not extortion-based, not productivity-decoupled capitalism. What that was was a system that was created to make sure currency could flow at the right level and at the right pace. Now, what did that mean? That meant there were a few wheat farmers. There were actually fewer mills, and there were a lot of bakeries. So the other thing it did was it actually made capital flow at scale. Yes. Right? The baker didn't need to have venture capital of a million dollars to get started. <clears throat> they needed another. And they needed to buy this week's flour. So they had a short credit duration and a very short, small credit requirement. The miller had to create a giant infrastructure, had to have water access, had to have giant stones and wheels to grind things. They had to have a very long-dated asset, and they had a huge long-dated asset. They needed to be able to have capital to build out an infrastructure that would take 
years to pay yeah. itself back. And the wheat grower had an episodic annual cycle, right? So now we have three different cycles. And the role of the bank was to facilitate the network connection yep. that said, you can trust as a bank that wheat growers, you'll always have a mill to go to. Why? Because we know that the mill has the capital it's required to keep itself operational all the time. And by the way, Miller, you know that there's always going to be a baker who's going to be able to buy your flour, and that's going to be something we help modulate. So what we had was a system where the network amplification created not only a robust agrarian system, yep. a robust production system, and a robust consumption system, but it also did something else. It actually was anti-thermodynamic. It created more value than it right. consumed. Right. So the cool thing about that model is it works. Now, what does that mean at the community level? Let's take Gold Coast as an example. We know that there's $3 billion, plus or minus, depending on who's counting, that's going to be spent for the Commonwealth Games. And we don't exactly know where it's going to be spent. We know that there's going to be buildings built. We know that there's going to be rail lines built. We know that there's going to be housing. We know that there's going to be infrastructure. <coughs> we know all of those kinds of things. <clears throat> but we don't know, for example, for the 10 days that there are hundreds of thousands or millions of people here, we don't know exactly where all the municipal waste is going. Yep. <clears throat> we don't know where that infrastructure is going to ultimately be repurposed and used in the future. So we come up with these illusions that say, trust me, somebody will figure something else out. But what we could do in this moment is say, let's look at the pulsatile nature of this. What we know is we're going to have the poop from visitors yep. to be really crass. A lot of it. A lot yep. more than Gold Coast usually has. You currently have 500,000 500, anuses. You're going to have a million, whatever. <laughs> so for 10 days, you're going to have an let's enormous gray water production. Yep. You're going to have enormous black water production. Right now, how are we going to use that to say that means that we should be able to have very nutrient-rich biomass to create phenomenal growing infrastructure harvested from the butts of all of our visitors? Now, that's a very crude example, but a very good example. What does a system-level process look yeah. like? And the system-level process doesn't start with stadiums and bridges and light rail and an airport expansion, that's not what a system level starts with. Right. A system level starts with the whole ecosystem. Yes. What are the inputs? What are the outflows, literally and metaphorically? How do we make sure that we've engaged all those processes? Because what we may find is we may find an opportunity to create something that becomes a role model for other things, mm -hmm. which means that as citizens of the Gold Coast or as citizens of Southeast Queensland or Queensland or Australia, what we should be asking of our public officials, what we should be asking of our public infrastructure is, are we in fact productivity linked or are we still trapped in an artifact-based model? Mm -hmm. An artifact-based model, as we know from large-scale events, loses money. Games lose money. <coughs> but the infrastructure right. engaged around utility is an economic engine. Yes. But if you don't have a plan for engaging the engine beforehand, then you're left with a bunch of derelict artifacts yeah. afterwards with people turning stadiums into IT hubs for the latest TAFE that comes along and says, hey, we need cheap space to, to lease and we have people who have cheap space to lease. That level of thinking 
is something that needs to change. But beyond that, what we need to be asking ourselves is where's our creativity? Where's our conversation going? So we can talk about whether we like a particular form or a particular design or where we have a bridge or where we have a road. But the public isn't saying, how do I walk and vote with my discretionary expenditure? How do I make sure that the local communities that I want to see built, I want to have great food, so I'm going to go to local grocers, I'm going to support local agriculture, I'm going to support keeping currencies local. How do I make sure that I've engaged the economy to build the economy I want to see? Yes. What happens way too often is we think that the system is so big that we can't affect change. But that's not true. This system is built on a single point failure called the discretionary dollar in your wallet. Right. 100% of this system is built on that, which means 100% of the system can be either tilted and realigned or collapse around the exact same thing. Right. We have a single point failure model, which means the minute we as a conscious consumer, we as a conscious community say, you know what, we're going to keep our currency local or for certain transactions, we're not going to use currency. The minute those things happen and the notion of yeah. engagement becomes something other than pass through the ANZ bank account that I have or the Westpac bank account that I have or the National, ba- National Australia bank account I have, the minute I actually step away from that, and it's not an absolute abandon it, it's just step away from it one step at a time, yeah. what happens is currency flows change. Yeah. And so this is not just a conversation, it's an important conversation. But there's a behavior shift that we can yeah. implement right away. Yeah. I highly recommend living inside of a utilitarian model that says that we balance our consumption with the input of productivity that we're making. So we build models that actually don't rely on financial intermediation for our activity, that we actually build models that say inputs and outputs match. Hopefully, we're more productive and we are consumptive. Right now we have a totally warped view of the world that says we can be overconsumptive and not productive. And I think that one of the other things that I would like to see us do is say if even those of us listening to this conversation right now, if we chose to say, let's pick one artifact of productivity, and that doesn't mean merely providing a service for which we're not monetarily compensated, but pick a thing of productivity. And that can be as simple as providing transport and logistics, opening up our homes instead of having people stay at a a hotel. The kinds of things that we really can do, we can start doing today. We could actually start changing how we think about economic models. Because if you look at the total occupied real estate in the Gold Coast, for example, how many homes, how many private residences have an unused bedroom, have an unused kitchen, have an unused whole house. Look at how many vacation homes, all those kinds of things. And I'm not advocating for an Airbnb model, but I'm actually advocating for an Airbnb type logic that says if we know we have latent and unfilled capacity, how do we engage that first and then bring along what improvements need to be made to build out the infrastructure? And while Uber and Airbnb have been interesting social experiments, which show that what I'm talking about is not an illusion, people actually do have latent capacity, if we had an audit 
of the latent capacity of this region, yep. you'd be surprised at how little of the $3 billion we would need to spend. Yep. But that's not who's driving the conversation. And what we need to do is we need to actually change who's driving the conversation, and the people actually can drive it. So just before, um, just before we wrap this piece, um, there's another thing that, uh, um, uh, because you know, this sort of brings it back to Big Blue Sky, which is the seed yep. bed of this conversation, uh, which was really created to have these type of conversations. Right. I mean, that was really the, um, I, um, Lou and I have believed that um, there are some amazing people in every community um, who would actually like to get together and, and change the conversation, and uh, and um, and so that was, you know, creating a convening and coordinating capacity for that. Uh, but I, I just wanted to point out another another thing that we've been looking at, and I'm very interested in, in that is a solution for some of the things that we've talked about, and it was triggered from my 25 year old daughter who uh, has asked me repeatedly, "What do I do with my savings?" And I have honestly not had an answer, um, based largely on this conversation that we've just had. Mm -hmm. And so um, in an earlier conversation, we talked about the possibility of creating a, a credit-based banking system at the local level, right. which was essentially um, to uh, enable local communities to fund local business investments on a short-term but very... Um, close credit-based relationship yeah. um, and it creates a circular economy, it keeps things thriving and these are the things that we can do right away. Yes. So there is no question that if we go back and look at what most people view as a conspiracy of yeah. the Morgans and Edison, for example, where most Tesla apologists believe that somehow or another Tesla was the victim of this industrial process that took place at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. If we go back and look at what made electricity ubiquitous, it was the recognition that local utilities yep. that ran at the marginal cost plus were the most reliable form of economic activity that could scale at any level. They could scale from the small community level all the way up. And one of the things that I like to do is take models and systems that do work, even if they've been hijacked, and learn from them. So if I look at what worked about a public utility, what worked about a public utility was not power generation, but power distribution. Right. Okay. Because the issue was not, can I generate power? The issue was, can I put a grid in place that has enough sockets that draw enough things off that I can pay for the entire rest of the ecosystem? Yep. So what's that metaphor teach us? That metaphor teaches us that if what we have is just-in-time credit solutions for things that are productive, yes. so essentially what we're doing is we're creating a mechanism that says that if a baker like Paddock yep. wants to add an oven, they could go to a bank and get a loan, or they have a community of however many hundreds or yep. thousands of people who actually like the bakery. They, they like going to the bakery, they like eating at the bakery, they like <laughs> engaging around what yep. that bakery represents. And if a community can come together and say, we know that either a new oven is required or we know that an additional oven would create a second opportunity yeah. to have another restaurant, 
there's no reason why a consumer-linked, yeah. affinity-linked community couldn't provide the short-term capital mm. where they are repaid in forward value. It's called a futures market. Yeah. Right? Futures markets are productivity-linked markets. What you're doing is you're paying today yep. for some form of a residual discounted value in the future. Yep. That model is a very robust model. It's worked for several thousand years. The entire Mediterranean trade system is based on futures. So the good news is this has worked for thousands of years, continues to work today. What it does is it links the productivity to a community of interest that cares about that productivity. Yep. Now the funny thing is people would say, but Dave, that doesn't mean everybody will always get financing. The answer is, I celebrate. Yes, that's exactly what it means. It means that things that do not deliver value yep. will probably not get funding, yep. which would be a great indictment of things that don't deliver value. Right. <laughs> right? The fact that a non-value producing enterprise yep. can go to venture capital and go to a bank and convince them through sleight of hand, through relationships, through manipulation, hey, give me money. And never once have the validation that says somebody wants the thing that I'm actually supplying right. is a travesty. Yeah. It's not an economic model that can work. But if what we do is we say, let's build credit facilities that match the duration. So however long it takes for a paddock to go through an oven, I don't yeah. know how long that takes, but let's say it takes five years. So let's create a system that says that the first thousand customers who produce capital to create that oven option have a forward discount on their consumption of what paddock makes for five years and they get a return which is more than what they would get on any other return on capital. That system works. And who benefits? Everyone. Everybody benefits. Now, the same could be done with rail projects. The same thing could be done with stadiums. The same thing could be done with roads and infrastructure. And the problem is if we think about the artifact and we uncorrelate it from the consumer, we'll never have this outcome. Right. We'll take public funds. We'll build roads that people don't like where they are and they don't like the direction and they don't like where the exits and the on-ramps are and the off-ramps are. And then we'll try to get people to use them. Or we'll try to disincentivize people by putting tolls up to block people from the thoroughfares that they want to use so that they use the thing that they don't want to use. Like these, This is the creativity that we currently have, by the way. If we can say, no, let's link it to productivity, regardless of the scale, let's make sure that we've maximized the utility of the artifact and correlated its value to its actual user, that forms the basis for a credit system. Mm -hmm. And it's something that communities can do and they don't have to do it through the establishment of a bank. They don't have to do it through the establishment of a financial advisory firm. They can do it as a community activity. And as those things are done and as those things grow, what people will realize is that by keeping currency flowing in the system, wealth accretion actually happens. Yep. Now the wealth may not be balance sheet wealth. It may be things like you'd like to live here wealth. Mm -hmm. It may be quality of experience wealth. It could be the quality of community wealth. It could be a lot of other things. But it turns out that the central argument of a productivity-linked business model or a productivity-linked capital model is that what you're doing is disseminating value to people who value the thing you're disseminating. 
and that becomes a very resilient and robust system. So my advice to anybody who actually cares about the future is don't let capital be parked in balance sheets of things that you don't care about or you don't understand or you don't see having value and use your capital to increase the liquidity of the currency flows and the things that you do value. Right. That's not a heretical idea. That's mm -hmm. actually a really robust idea. And I give Thomas Rao in the Netherlands a ton of credit for his work with Philips and with others on this idea of technology or buildings or designs as service rather than artifact. Where what you're buying is the forward value of the thing you're using. You're not buying the thing. Right. And that concept of materials as a service or products as a service or any of those things is a very robust step into a future that says that's how we can all get along quite a bit better. We actually make things that last longer. We don't think of ourselves as enclosed owners of things, but we think of them as stewards of the things that we're using. And so our models are utilitarian. They're not artifact driven. These are all really robust tools that we have at our disposal. And so the 25 year old that wants to affect change is probably going to be more fruitfully engaging their capital if they think of what they like, what are the experiences they have, who are the vendors that they receive value from, what's that infrastructure, and figuring out what those enterprises need as a capital base, and then coming up with value exchanges inside of that right. system. Great. Very nice. So we're going to take a break, um, just, uh, um, just 10 minutes or so, and then we'll be doing Q&A. Very good. Um, <laughs> Please join us for Big Blue Sky, October 7th and 8th, 2016 on the Gold Coast. David will be one of our guest presenters. Visit bigblueskyevent.com for more information and to register your name. For more information on Dr. Martin, visit m-cam.com and for his blog, invertedalchemy.com. For more information about Christine McDougall, visit the number two, the number two, the number three, am.com. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want more of 223 AM, then you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to the blog of 223am.com. That's blog.223am.com, where you'll find articles and interviews featuring stellar guests from around the world, plus tools and resources and much, much more. Follow 223am on Twitter at twitter.com slash 2 underscore 23am. That's 2 underscore 23am. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash 0223 AM. Till next time, thank you for listening. Shut up.